Hey, this is Brian Ritchie from Violent Femmes, and you're listening to everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. All the stars lined up, but the music had us, and when they walked out on that stage, there was no way that anybody who was at a certain age wasn't going to be watching. You know, the great thing about Sullivan was we all sat around a television as a family in those days. There wasn't a TV in every room. There was one television and Sunday nights at eight was sacrosanct. It was always a pleasant surprise as to who had promoted at the front of the show. It is almost impossible to imagine what it was like to be at ground zero of American Beatlemania on February 7th, 1964, when the group landed at New York City's John F. Kennedy International Airport, which had been renamed some 50 days earlier in honor of the fallen leader. The band's Pan Am flight was met with the screams and fanfare of some 5,000 people whom the Beatles claimed to have heard, incredible as it may seem, even as the plane was taxiing along the runway. As writer Stephen Glenn remarked, the spirit of Camelot, shot down in Dallas, Texas, had flown over from Liverpool, England, and the unprecedented euphoria that greeted the group seemed part of an expiation, a nation shaking itself out of its grief and mourning. There was little question that the Beatles' timing in the history of the United States was uncanny, as well as a welcome respite from the national malaise but one cannot overlook the power of marketing in a new media era unlike any that the post-war world had ever seen. Capitol Records had saturated the city with posters announcing, the Beatles are coming, while New York's WMCA and WINS radio stations had given away t-shirts and, rumor has it, one dollar each to thousands of teenagers who greeted the Beatles that Friday afternoon on the JFK tarmac. Released in December 1963 by Capitol, I Want to Hold Your Hand had sold more than one million copies by mid-January, an astounding feat for a group that had been largely unheard of on American shores scarcely a month before. On Sunday, February 9th, the Beatles launched into a spirited rendition of All My Loving to begin their set on The Ed Sullivan Show before some 73 million television viewers, a figure that accounted for nearly 40% of the population in the U.S. at that time. It was popular music's Big Bang, and like that incredible instance of the birth of the universe some 13 billion years ago, it is still resonating. Welcome to this special edition of Everything Fab Four, 
in which we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the onset of American Beatlemania and the band's inaugural appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. We'll explore our guests' indelible experiences that fabled Sunday evening as the Beatles visited their living rooms for the very first time. And we'll even hear from one of the lucky 728 attendees who graced CBS Studio 50 on that extraordinary night six decades ago. Up first is Steve Lukather, our initial guest back in September 2020. Lukather is best known as the lead guitarist for Toto, the band behind such enduring hit songs as Hold the Line, 99, Rosanna, Africa, and I Won't Hold You Back. Since 2012, Lukather has toured with former Beatles drummer Ringo Starr's live supergroup, The All-Star Band. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, anybody my age that's a musician has the same story. It's like, for me, it's like life went to black and white to color. You know what I mean? It's like the Wizard of Oz. There was life pre-Beatles and then post-Beatles. Nothing was ever the same. I've been in a, I was in a band when I was nine. You know what I mean? And I never stopped. I mean, and then as exponentially as everything went on, I mean, I was a Beatles freak and then the whole British invasion. And, you know, then there's the Beck Page Clapton years. I mean, you know, I mean, I followed everything as it came out. Jimi Hendrix and all, you know, that was, I was like 11 in a band making money. You know what I mean? I'm trying to play and I actually play some of this stuff, which at the time was really weird. Now there's like a, you know, like a two-year-old that plays like Stevie Ray Vaughan or something like that. You know what I mean? They all start out shredding, you know, it's like there was, I was, there wasn't very many of me around, you know what I mean? So I was a little stuck out. I found a couple guys that could play, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and you know, once you get the bug, you know, you see the Beatles. I mean, my grandmother used to take me to see Hard Day's Night. I don't know, I've seen it 40 times, you know what I mean? When I had to pay to get into the theater. All I could, I mean, it was like this, I wanted so much to be a part of what that was, that whole movement and just the music, the music just got into my soul. I was a little single digit kid, so it wasn't a, a money or a sexual thing at all. It was just the music hit my soul. And I said, I got to, I got to learn how to do that and make that noise. You know what I mean? And that was a, an eternal quest. I never thought, I mean, what are the mathematical odds of a little kid in North Hollywood seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan all of a sudden playing on the 50th anniversary of that show? Up next is Grammy award-winning singer Judy Collins. In 1967, she accomplished global fame with her revered cover version of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, later achieving the biggest success of her career with her recording of Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns. When it came to remembering The Sullivan Show, Judy shared her reverie by breaking into What Else song. For my money, the coolest thing the Beatles ever did was play Till There Was You from the Music Man on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yes! But I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all. A beautiful song. Till There Was You. A smashing song. And then there's Stephen Van Zandt. Best known as a longtime guitarist for Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, he has appeared in several television drama series, including as Silvio Dante in The Sopranos and as Frank Tagliano in Lilyhammer. He is also the vaunted band leader of Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. You know, the Ed Sullivan Show, well, I, I'd, I'd heard the record before that. Um, this one night, um, I had my transistor radio underneath the covers. I was uh, I was twelve, 
And um, on came, uh, I want to hold your hand. And uh, I'd never heard anything like it. And uh, me and my brother, uh, my brother who's seven years younger, um, sleeping in the next bed, you know, we, uh, we were listening to the radio and, uh, and when they hit, when they hit the chorus, when they hit the high note, we, we, we both burst out laughing just spontaneously, which, um, I think uh, sums up exactly the effect of the Beatles music, you know, um, which I would define as just, um, uh, pure joy, you know, at that at that stage of, of one's life, um, uh, you know, completely one hundred percent joyful, and and um, something that you know not you'd heard you'd heard something similar to that, but no, nothing quite like it, and uh, so it was immediately um, it was immediately dominated your your mind from from that moment on, and you just wanted to hear more and more and more, and and then February 9th, of course, which was uh, well, what would have been? I guess we we would have first heard the record somewhere around around Christmas. Um, it got it started getting on the radio in December, and you know it's early January, and then um, you know by 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 uh, by February 9th when they did the TV show, uh, it, it was already number one. And uh, soon after that, everything they put out or had ever put out would be on the charts. I mean, it was incredible. For a couple of months there, I mean, everything they did was just an enormous hit. But, um, you know, as, as I've said a thousand times, you know, February 8th, there were no bands in America. February 10th, everybody had a band in their garage, you know. After watching The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show, Nancy Wilson saw the rest of her life unfold before her, later rising to fame alongside her sister Anne as a guitarist for Hart. In their heyday, Hart generated a raft of hit singles such as Magic Man, Crazy On You, Barracuda, Straight On, and Dog and Butterfly. You know the Beatles were my, the reason I ever got into music to begin with, um, other than being in a musical family, but... When the, when the Beatles landed, like the lunar landing, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show in February 64, to be exact. And, um, you know, that changed the trajectory of my, the rest of my entire life. Singer-songwriter Ricky Lee Jones enjoyed a similar response on that fateful February 1964 evening. Later, in 1979, she would become an overnight success with the jazz-flavored single, Chuck E's In Love, which hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100. After performing her debut show in Boston, Time Magazine dubbed her the Duchess of Coolsville. Everybody was talking about him, and we turned on Ed Sullivan, which we, we probably would have done. I was at my cousin's. They were cooking chicken and rice-a-roni because the moment is embedded in my brain with smells and sounds, everything. I stood at the door between the kitchen and the living room, and they came on. And um, at first, so there were feelings like, who cares? What's this? By the end of the song, the world was changed. I... And everybody there who'd been listening to Gene Pitney the night before was changed. It was quite fantastic. 
Renowned singer Darlene Love not only recalls watching the Beatles on The Sullivan Show, but also had the privilege of meeting them at the height of their fame. During her long career, Love recorded He's a Rebel for producer Phil Spector, topping the Billboard charts in the process. In later years, she scored an enduring seasonal hit with Christmas Baby Please Come Home, after which talk show host David Letterman dubbed her the Christmas Queen. Do you remember watching the Ed Sullivan show in February 1964? Well, of course. <laughs> That's what we did on Sunday night, black or white. <laughs> did you ever have an opportunity to meet any of the Beatles then? Oh, I met all of them. Yes. Oh, well, tell us about that. Well, it was a brief encounter because, you know, you say you've met them, but when they did the television show Shindig, you know, we were... The Blossoms were the originals on that. We were on that show every week. It ran for like two years. And everybody that ever thought they was a star did that show. So, And all I can say is they were four of the nicest gentlemen that I had ever met. You know, very accommodating, you know, didn't think they were who they they were really nice being around us. They wanted us to tell them about our we. Tell us about your history being in, uh, in, in, in show business here in the United States. Singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins owes his mother for suggesting that he tune into the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. With the duo Loggins and Messina and as a solo artist, he would go on to sell more than 25 million albums worldwide and win two Grammy Awards. His chart-topping songs include This Is It, I'm Alright, Footloose, Danger Zone, and many more. My mother, who was worked in a drugstore, uh, on her way to work one morning, she said, oh, I hear there's, there's a new band on TV on Ed Sullivan tonight that you might be interested in. They're supposed to be all the rage. I hadn't heard a thing about the Beatles up to that point. And then uh, that night, in front of our black and white TV, I saw the Beatles. And just everything changed. It just suddenly was like, oh, this is what I want to do. For her part, actress and model Barbara Feldon vividly remembers the day the Beatles took Manhattan. While best known for portraying Agent 99 on the classic 1960s sitcom Get Smart, in recent years, Feldon has authored two books, Living Alone and Loving It, A Guide to Relishing the Solo Life, and Getting Smarter, a memoir. Now, shortly before Get Smart comes into your life, you had to have been watching the Ed Sullivan show on, on February 9th, 1964, right? Yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you the only reason I watched it. Um, I, it, it was 64. Absolutely. So is that when it was? Yes. I'm terrible with dates, but um, Lucien, my apartment was on 60th Street near Park Avenue. And in 64, I had done the pilot. We didn't start until 65 to have it be on the air. So I was in New York at that time. And I, we heard this roar go up from the street. Periodically, this roar would come up from the street. And we were on the fifth floor. And so we climbed up to the roof to see what was going on and looked over the parapet down onto Park Avenue. And there was a, a mob of young women on Park Avenue spilling off the sidewalk. 
and they were roaring. And I asked somebody else who lived in the apartment, what, what are they screaming about? And somebody said, it's the Beatles. The Beatles are in town. I said, the what? The Beatles, like in the bug, like <laughs> those crawly things? The Beatles? Yeah, yeah, they're going to be on Ed Sullivan. So that's why I watched Ed Sullivan. I was totally skeptical and thought, this is just so silly, um, this little boy band. And I turned it on, and I got it instantly. I was absolutely charmed by their light, you know, the optimism of it, the freedom, the fun, that spirit that they had. Leave it to Academy Award-winning actor Billy Bob Thornton to cut to the chase when it comes to the Beatles' impact. Thornton cites the band as a central influence in his career in music and film. With the Boxmasters, his duo with J.D. Andrew, one can hear obvious odes to the Beatles, Birds, and Beach Boys, among a host of other influences. I saw the Beatles when I was eight years old on Ed Sullivan. So I was laying on a wooden floor looking at an old black and white zenith, and uh, there they were. And uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of the Beatles, uh, it showed, you know, the drums with Ludwig on, on them, right? And uh, I thought initially that Ringo's name was Ludwig because I didn't know anything about brand names and stuff like that yet, you know. So as an eight-year-old, I thought the drummer's name was Ludwig just for a few minutes until I read more. But um, anyway, it was – there's not a real way to describe to people who who didn't grow up with the Beatles – exactly how it felt i mean like the essence of 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 them and what it did to you and you know it but it made us all fans of not only the beatles but the whole british invasion i mean we would watch uh you know now there's so much criticism and so many uh you know whoever puts a record out it's always like you got people in the internet who don't like this one or do like that one and everything and back then we liked everybody who was on ed sullivan I mean, you know, I mean, it was Freddie and the Dreamers and the Kinks and Gary Lewis and the Playboys. We didn't care. You know, it was just that was that was the kind of rock and roll that informed the rest of our lives. Finally, there's Debbie Gendler, the author of the new book, I Saw Them Standing There, Adventures of an Original Fan During Beatlemania and Beyond. Gindler is a four-time Emmy-nominated television executive and producer who formerly worked at CBS and ABC. As an original Beatles fan who was in the studio audience for the group's first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, Debbie currently works as a co-producer at Sofa Entertainment, owner of The Ed Sullivan Show. Debbie's story is absolutely heartwarming. It begins with a young girl falling in love with the Beatles, desperately hoping to see them finally getting that wonderful opportunity to be in the audience and then perhaps in the most heartwarming moment of all ending up in the arms of her mother and going home when i first heard beatles was actually more like when i first saw beatles my parents uh, friends had just returned from a trip to england and they brought me the album please please me so i opened it up and I took one look at these four cutest, cutest, cutest guys. 
and fell immediately in love. I hadn't heard them yet. I only saw them on the cover. You believe in love at first sight. I guess I do. Yeah, <laughs> it's true because my husband and I decided to get married after only knowing each other three weeks. So, hey, you know, and we've been married 44 years. So it does, it does happen. And so I guess I fell in love with them first. And I tried desperately to interest my friends um, in my hometown of Oakland, New Jersey, to listen to them, to come to my house. No one had any interest. In desperation to meet other people who might love these Beatles as much as I did, I wrote a letter to the fan club. I never heard anything. Now, this was May 63. I never heard anything, although I, I went away to sleepaway camp that summer from where I was in New Jersey to Maine. I had gone there many years in a row. And um, we went on a field trip to either North Conway or Franconia Notch, New Hampshire. I can't remember which. And everyone was buying postcards to send home, but not me. I got a postcard. I remember putting three five-cent stamps on it. And I wrote, Dear Fan Club, remember me, Debbie Gendler, Oakland, New Jersey. Remember me. And I had in my head remembered Beatle Fan Club, 13 Monmouth Street, London, England. That's all I remembered. I put that on the postcard. Never heard anything from that either. But it was Halloween weekend, sort of right around Halloween at the end of October. I came home from school and my mother said, you received a telegram. I said, a telegram? Like, oh. And from a law office in New York, where I lived was about 26 miles away from Manhattan. And um, it said that um, Beatles management arriving in New York early November looking for fans of the Beatles to organize. Could I come to a meeting in New York? Please call. And that was it. I didn't know dates or anything. So I begged my mom to call. And um, I was an only child. So I was very indulged, or at least that's what everyone I know tells me. <laughs> and, and so um, my mom did call. And I spent that day in school just thinking, oh, did she mess this whole thing up? Well, I got home from school. And sure enough, she said that my dad will be driving me to New York the following week to go and meet this lawyer to see if I could do something with the fans when the Beatles came. So my dad drove me in and fortunately it was Veterans Day. I had no school. School was closed there in New Jersey on Veterans Day. And my dad drove me in 
and I went to, his name was Walter Hoffer, and mm. he had an office on 55th Street, and it was a rickety sort of old building with a guy, there was still an elevator operator, and uh, we went up to Walter Hoffer's office, and uh, there were two secretaries sitting in the front, and we were directed into the back room, and there was Walter Hoffer, a smallish guy, had sort of a Germanic accent, and there in the distance, who I was introduced to but didn't know his name, was Brian Epstein. Wow. Who, okay, and I said Epstein, and he immediately corrected me. It is Epstein. So I always say it correctly from here on. Um, and he was talking to two other men, both with English accents. One I later learned was Brian's like childhood friend, Jeffrey Ellis, who lived in New York, who then later packed up and moved to London to go work for Brian at his company. But he was there. And then there was another guy with a British accent, and I can't tell you who it was, if it was Billy J. Kramer, because they said later, I learned, he traveled with him. But from the looks, I don't remember. Or I'm thinking Nikki Byrne, the memorabilia manufacturing disastrous guy. Mm. But anyway, it was someone who had a British accent. And... Um, he looked at me and said, uh, you know, we're looking for fans to organize when the Beatles will come to America. I was told that night that or that even late, late afternoon, um, this took place at a, between 1030 and 11 o'clock in the morning, my meeting, that Brian was going to meet with Ed Sullivan at his hotel where he lived, to confirm dates for the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And I remember saying, I am sorry, Mr. Epstein, I can't work. I have to go to college. Well, obviously, he saw I was 13 years old and no way could really work. Um, and the meeting was over in 15 to 20 minutes. But as we left, Walter Hoffer's secretary, who I later learned was named Evelyn Klein, um, called me over and said, I want to confirm your name, address, telephone number, because Mr. Hoffer thinks there still is going to be a need for you. And if the Beatles do go on Ed Sullivan, we will send you a ticket to thank you for your time. That's how I got my ticket to go sit in the audience. So then they, they hit the stage. Tell me what, tell us what that was like. Yeah. Well, when they hit the stage, that's when everyone lost it. Okay. There was such a shriek in the audience. It was, it was electric. It was unbelievable. And even those two boys were actually a little animated because as I looked down, they were sort of like in my view the whole time. And um, 
I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to describe the the breathless aspect too. So you would scream, and then it was hard to catch your breath because you were screaming. Um, I don't remember anyone fainting, but I do remember people folded over in their chair. Okay, mm. see, folded over with head down. But um, it was, you know, it the 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 saddest part is is that it was over before it started. That's the thing. It was like each song seemed like a minute and a half or so, two minutes. And by the time you really had a chance to focus on what was going on, bye. They'll be coming back, we were told, later in the show. And um, it it just happened in such an instant. And I guess I, you know, I remember seeing their names under each beetle. Um, I remember under John's, the sorry girls, he's married, but I can't, um, I I remember seeing that on the monitor briefly. As I said, I watched the monitor a whole lot. Um, And that's, it, it was over. And then it was impossible to sit through the other acts. Oh, and even though those acts were a lot, were predominantly British, you had like Tessie O'Shea and you had Georgia Brown and, uh, you know, Davy Jones, who we later came to learn was there on the stage as part of Oliver. And, um, but still even that wasn't enough to quite quiet us down. I mean, you know, we all knew the Beatles were there. We knew that they were, off in their dressing rooms waiting to come back. It was it was a tough, tough show till they came back. And they were introduced in those couple of songs. I saw them stand I saw her standing there. And um, you know, I want to hold your hand. It was like, whoo, gone, done. And people started filing out of the theater. It was like we had gone through like a wartime experience is what it felt like. Were you, were you even like exhausted at that point? Oh, I was. I was. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, um, it was, uh, it was overwhelming that, and um, everyone was gathering up their stuff that we had, remember it was February. Downstairs, there was a coat check. Some people checked their coats, some people didn't. There were gloves and hats and everyone started filing out. And um, when when I got downstairs, I looked at front and there was my mother. There was a coffee shop across the street on Broadway where my mother took shelter (laughs) during the cold but she was frozen. She was wearing a navy blue cloth coat. And um, I remember I spotted her across the street, absolutely shivering. And um, I ran to her and I started to cry. And she took a hold of my hand and um, we quickly walked to the garage where the car was. I had school the next day. 
Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit EverythingFab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. Everything Fab Four.